Welcome to Design by Us, the show where we discuss how humans have designed the world. My name is Ravi Chohan, and with me today is Luigi Dintrano. Luigi, how are you doing today? I'm I'm great. I'm great today. You? Yeah, I saw a rainbow today. A rainbow. So I'm feeling pretty good. Saw so a double rainbow good. today, actually. Wow. Okay. Well, I saw a triple. Anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, listen. Today we've got a really exciting topic. We're going to ask the question: How can design enable business models? You and I are both nerdy about two very different things. Well, we're both nerdy about the same two things, which is design and business models. And to explore that question, we're going to be looking at a company that we've become very familiar with in the last few weeks and months, and that is IKEA. Of course, Luigi, we've just moved in to the same apartment with some other people as well. And of course, a new place means new furniture. And new furniture, of course, when you're on a budget, means one place, and it means IKEA. And I think it's fair to say that we've both been going on trips to IKEA and we've kind of been fascinated by this brand and we've been fascinated by the products and actually how this whole business works and what better lens to look for it than design. I, I agree with you. I think IKEA, let us just jump into what, what is IKEA exactly and why did we pick IKEA? And I'm just going to read a few interesting stats here. IKEA has 433 stores in 53 countries, 45 billion in retail sales, making it one of the biggest retail furniture stores in the world and no one goes even close. One billion store visits, that means a seventh of the world, statistically, visits IKEA every year, which is, is madness to think. And the other one is 2.8 billion online visits. What, per year? Per year, yeah. Which, nice. if you think about it, it's just crazy to think that the place to go for furniture purchase is IKEA. And if I might quote wise football player, Slatan Ibrahimovic, a few, a few years ago, he bought a big house and a lot of really famous companies were reaching out to him saying like, Hey, we would love to furnish your new house. It's, it's a big project for us. And Ibrahimovic tweeted, I've received this many offers, but only a stupid person would buy a new house and not use Ikea to furnish it. <laughs> That's all you need. And the, what is really interesting is IKEA's mission, which I'm going to read it for you here. To offer a wide range of well-designed, functional home furnishing products at a prices that are so low that as many people as possible can afford them. And this goes back to a very interesting topic that we talked about in a few episodes ago, which is democratic design or democratization of design. Do you remember that? I think I do. The Objectified documentary. The documentary. Yeah. Yeah, Objectify documentary. We have a, an episode about that documentary that we can add in the show notes. But I, I remember we had mixed feelings about that thought, about the idea of democratization or democratizing X. And I, I also feel that is an overused word. But if there is a company that sticks to it, I would say IKEA is one of the ones that do a really good job. Um, what was your first memory of IKEA? We don't have IKEA. I, I didn't have an IKEA while growing up. Uh, my first memory of Ikea is first time I moved into the US and one of my professors was moving in as well and they got their mattress from Ikea and they said, no question, we just get it from Ikea. They showed me all the catalog of mattresses and it's just really easy to buy. You pretty much have one product line, which is mattresses, and you just have different categories of depending on the mattress you want to buy and you say, okay. Can I afford the cheapest one? Yes. Is that the one I want to buy? Maybe not. I'll go to the next cheapest one and so on and so on and so on, right? They don't really overcomplicate product lines. So they make it really easy for users to understand. What about you? 
to be honest, IKEA is always something I can't remember not going to IKEA. And, you know, that kind of like, for us, we'll talk more about it later, but IKEA was a drive away and it was always kind of like a bit of a day out. And even though it is shopping with my parents, which I usually hate for whatever reason, IKEA and Costco, I've really loved going to. Oh, we're going to IKEA today. Great. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Interesting. Did you have one of these uh, Billy bookcase? Yep, a Billy bookcase. Of course, everyone's got a Billy bookcase. You know, final stats from IKEA. In the UK, IKEA sells an average using the, the 2018 statistic. One Billy bookcase every single minute. Every single bloody hell. In the UK. That's incredible. On average. Very crazy, yeah. Very, very, very There must crazy. be like a portion of forests in the world where the wood is just for Billy bookcases. For IKEA. That's, that's also an interesting thing that I wanted to discuss later, but now that you brought it up. So in 2018, uh, another statistic that I got here, 2018, they logged 700,000 trees to use it for, for manufacturing their products. Wow. And at the same time, planted 3.6 million. Wait, hold on. Oh, okay, right. So yeah, they're, they're, they're adding more trees and they're taking away. Yeah, the reason why you do that as well is because you also you are also expecting demand to go up. You're, you're planning to grow, right? Mm -hmm. So a tree takes about ten years for it to be useful. Mm -hmm. If you look at it that way, ten to twenty years to to. So if you're expecting in twenty years to to have three times or four times more demand, you also need to have enough resources to make sure that you're using that sustainably. So that that's the analogy or or the idea of why IKEA is planting that many trees. It's not because, oh, we're amazing for the planet, but we, they are also intentional about, okay, we, we need to make sure we have that many in the next 20 years. Yeah. So yeah. Nice one. All right. It's really interesting because like, you know, as designers, you can look at Ikea as like, oh, it's beautiful design and everybody loves Ikea and stuff like that. But there's the other way of, of looking at it, which is, I'm not sure if this is my opinion, but it's that other way of looking at it, which is, hey, this is like the same for everybody. It's very boring. It's very consumerist. Um, and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Fight Club. No, you show me something about it, but talk me through it. All right. So in, in F Fight Club is like, this is a massive tangent, but Fight Club is like a movie about how the modern world is really bad. If you're like an edgy teenager, particularly if you're an edgy male teenager, Fight Club is your favorite movie, right? It's that kind of film. Basically in it, the main character who's played by Edward Norton, who later became the Hulk, basically has a, like a period in this film where all he wants to do is buy stuff from Ikea because for him, that's what success means. It's like... I've got my office job. I'm going to go and buy stuff from Ikea and then people will come over to my house and they'll see how great all my Ikea stuff is. I think we're going through that kind of like, are we going to buy our own furniture and it's going to be ours and we can pick what we want and we can express ourselves through the choices that we get at one singular store, which is kind of where the criticism of, you know, of the brand comes in really. I mean, a few mixed feelings about that. If you actually want to do something for the environment, the best thing to do is just to get a secondhand bookshelf or a secondhand sofa. Mm. This is already produ produced, right? So you're not really adding to the, the demand or, or consuming that extra product that is being taken from the environment. But I think if you compare IKEA on the spectrum of all the companies that produce furniture, I don't have a stat actually for that, but I, I assume IKEA will be in the best side of that spectrum. All right, well, look, let's talk about what happens when you actually get to Ikea, right? First of all, what's really interesting about Ikea's is they're typically out of the way, right? They're not in the city center of London. They're in, you know, different places on the outskirts. You kind of got to go, go drive. It's kind of like going to an out, out of town mall. And from, from a design perspective, and in terms of how design has enabled Ikea to actually run the way it does 
their retail experience is, is really interesting to think about. Have you ever heard of the Gruen effect? No. All right, interesting. So basically, when you enter an IKEA store, it's meant to be intentionally overwhelming. And it's, it's supposed to like totally bamboozle you, right? It's supposed to make you forget why you came because you mm -hmm. might go and say, I'm just going to get my Billy bookcase today or whatever else it might be. And forget why you came. You're not just going into the store to grab your thing and then get out. Uh, you're actually, so that way you make more impulse purchases. And because you are so overwhelmed, you also lose track of time a little bit like a casino because there's just so much going on um, and you become engrossed in, in this experience. And for us, for me, like as a kid, even right now, going to Ikea is that sense is going up the massive escalators um, up to the floor and then you go up to that floor and then you're smelling the food from the left-hand side. You're seeing loads of different products already. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but they've got like a massive like three-story wall uh, which you kind of look at as you go up and they've got products suspended in midair. And it's just like, you're in this crazy mm. dreamscape of furniture. <laughs> and that is really intended to get you bamboozled, get you confused, get you mm -hmm. overwhelmed. So that way you buy more, which I thought was really interesting. So you're basically saying that by being overwhelmed, you will make more irrational purchasing decisions. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think what they're doing is they're making it more difficult to go in and grab the thing you want. It's like supermarkets, the eggs are in the, away from the entrance. So that way you have to go for a bunch of other stuff to go get your eggs because they know most people want to oh. buy eggs, right? It's that yeah. kind of, hey, I'm here on a mission to do X, Y, Z. And then they're just trying to distract you from that mission to say, hey, have you tried? Hey, you know, you're not looking at, I know you're only here, you're only here for a bookshelf right now, but have you seen, you know, this? The, the lamp that goes on top of the bookshelf. Yeah, there. exactly. And all that kind of stuff. And actually it's really interesting because the whole... The whole way ikea is set out is meant to kind of distract you so what's really interesting about ikea is not a store like you know you're not going in it's not like aisles that you would see in a supermarket or, or wherever else um, and it's not like a department store where you kind of make your own way through it in mm -hmm. ikea there is a fixed path right which is you might not notice when you're in there but it's generally a circular kind of, and that does two things the first one is because it's a fixed path but literally like arrows i don't know if you've ever seen these arrows projected onto the floor in terms of which direction you're supposed to go in what yeah. that does to your brain is it, it creates a fear that you're going to miss out on something if you don't follow the path because you're there, you're trying to find something. It's not, Hey, we're in this department of the department store. We're in the, in the beds area. We're in the, uh, mattresses area. We're in this that area or wherever. Um, it's not very logical. So that way you feel like you have to follow the path because it's the only logic or only way to go through it. Yeah. And that way they get an opportunity to show you everything that's there. If yeah. that makes sense. IKEA also has uh, some shortcuts and yeah. I've realized now that I don't really take them. I reckon if you look at, if you plot like the average time that people spend in IKEA in, yeah. in like another shop, like say for example, John Lewis department store, which is somewhat competitive. Um, you'll get people who pop in for like 15 minutes all the way to people who are there for like four hours. I reckon for IKEA, it's much tighter in a single range. Cause I reckon they try and push everybody into that range for the optimal store experience because they mm -hmm. put people through this kind of route. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Do, do you know anything about what's the order of things in IKEA? Let's say first is kitchens. No, I didn't. Uh, because yeah, no, I didn't. But the, the IKEA that we, we go to is actually the IKEA that I used to go to as a kid. And I can tell you for a fact that they changed the order. So maybe they're changing it because they're optimizing it or because they're changing it to make sure that it's always new. It's always, yeah. I wouldn't say disconcerting, but it's always, they're always trying to, Stop adapting to exactly what you need. 
I, I think it's, it's something related to adapting to new consumer behaviors. I'm sure they, they, they have a massive research lab, but we're going to talk about it afterwards, but just analyzing new consumer behaviors and saying, hey, people are looking, this is, I don't know, bookshelf season for whatever reason. Yeah. Or students are coming into town, right? So let's have a, a student season and let's have a student area in X part of the store because we know that performs best. Yeah. So no, that, exactly. that could definitely... Uh, interesting. And what's um, also interesting about this circular journey, right, is that yeah. because it's like a spiral, you're always turning. So imagine mm -hmm. if IKEA was just one massive long corridor, you could see a lot further ahead in terms of what's coming up. But because in IKEA, you're always just turning the corner, there's always as well. Because of that, you're, you feel like you have to go down the path and you're also you're always re-stimulated with new stuff that you haven't seen before. So you're turning a corner, you're in a new world. And then don't forget, yeah. like, you know, if you go into IKEA, you, you get these um, amazing like studio sets, like you'd see like a movie studio mm -hmm. or a TV studio in terms of like a beautiful room, like a beautiful bedroom or a beautiful kitchen or whatever else it might be. And those are always so new, and, uh, which mm -hmm. I think is really cool. Yeah, I read this somewhere in, in, in one of the resources that we looked at. The reason why you build these stores is number one, to project how that room could look in their own space and have to feel this is how my house could look like. But also what is really interesting is, is because you have what 10 to 15 or even 20 different rooms is to allow the user to already imagine what works with what. So let's say the user goes for bookshelves, as you said, but they, they already see that that bookshelf works well with a, with a desk lamp that, that they just put on top or a fruit basket or etc because you have so many iterations of the same product you went for a bookshelf but you're already thinking of okay now i need these other two or three items that go with this well they actually optimize for that so there's this thing called bulla bulla um and do you ever see those massive like metal crates full of stuff like it might be i don't know like teddy bears i saw two kids fighting with stuff okay. the other day when i was in ikea or it might be like hangers or it might be napkins or whatever else it might be were you fighting too as well for those teddy bears uh well they were using the the teddy bears i just went in with fists and just ended oh, up okay. yeah you know um but you know you've seen those right you know what i mean yeah yeah, cool. yeah. so basically what the reason why they are the way they are um, is because they want to show you they've got a lot of stuff, right? They don't just have a few teddy bears. They don't just have a few stuffed toys. They don't just have a few hangers. They've got tons. And what that does to your brain is say, oh my word, they've got so many. This is really high volume and therefore makes your brain think it's cheaper than it actually is. So you kind of associate mm. it as this is cheap. This is good value. There's a lot of it. It's a commodity. And that's the way that they try and get you. To, I think, I think they're probably higher margin items perhaps as well. Um, those kinds of things that are there. I mean, one example is, um, plastic plants that they get, you know, they probably cost them pennies mm -hmm. to make and, you know, they're probably selling for five or six quid. My one question I want to ask you, right? What's your favorite thing to eat at Ikea? Cinnamon buns. Cinnamon buns, right. And if you ask people this, they've got opinions. I really like the other uh, fish and I really the like fish. the ice cream and the ice cream there as well. And I don't have an ice cream. No, well, this is it, right? And you yeah. just ask yourself the question, why the hell is this furniture shop selling food, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, what's really weird is that apparently 30% of IKEA customers come to IKEA just to eat. So it's nearly one in three. 30%. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is nuts. They, they may one year, uh, they, they make about two or $3 billion in revenue just from food sales, which makes them the 10th largest food retailer in the world. 
just shows you the scale like food is their side business and it's still a massive business in its own right what's interesting is why they do this number one i think it's that kind of cultural part you know where i care show our yeah. culture is our food but actually uh, they see it as complementary to their main business which is obviously furniture because they think that you know, Ikea is cheap, right? But furniture in general is expensive. So you're still spending a lot of money. You can easily spend a thousand pounds in Ikea. And what they're thinking is if we can get people to stay here a little bit longer, we can get them to talk about their purchases with each other. And if they talk about their purchases with each other, they can actually make a decision. So groups of customers, maybe it's a couple, maybe it's a family or whatever else it might be. So they actually have a little saying for this, which is meatballs are the best sofa sellers. Of course, meatballs are their, their famous menu item. Yeah. Um, and, and the actual act of eating creates dopamine in your brain. So it's just another reason to kind of psychologically influence your customers. And, and, and finally as well, because the location of Ikea is traditionally out of the way, out of the center, it makes more of a reason for that to be a destination. If you think of a mall, for example, yeah. you know, there's, there's food court, whatever else it might be. And in a sense, they're competing with that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, and you, you mentioned the dopamine bit. If, if you think about it, usually the food part is either at the very beginning or at the end. But at mm -hmm. the same time, the big court is at the end as well. So you get access to it at the end. And I wonder if there is some reason of having that food section after you spend two hours walking around, looking for food, you're probably oh, thirsty. Yeah. You actually probably need the energy yeah. as well. You, need, you yeah. need the food afterwards. So after you, you get that food, you are basically, Ikea is fulfilling a core need. So after, let's say you didn't find the bookshelf, so you're a bit sad, but you find that that food store or that food court that they have and then you are like okay let's have a, a nice meal but at the end you end up leaving ikea in a happy uh, mood because they already fulfill a, a human core which is eating so you, yeah. you live at least with, with a full stomach i'd like i'd like to say that i'm not susceptible to this kind of consumer trickery but 100 percent i am yeah anyway there's food I'm, I'm down but anyway look we talked about the store yeah what fills those stores and how do they design it very interesting. So how, what, how does Ikea manages to make great design very cheaply? So just to give you some perspective, Ikea has about 9,500 product lines right now. Every year, the design team works on around 2,000 new products. These products, don't, not all of them make it to the market. Not all of them make it every year to the market. So they take a few years to, and they, they collaborate with, that's one thing. Let me break this down in a few topics. So I'm, I'm going to share some principles. Ikea starts with, with a few things, and I'm going to give you an example, which is the Odger project. Okay. It all starts with the consumer. What does a consumer need? How, what, what, what's it, what's the consumer segment that we are trying, that we're tackling with this project? Just to give you an idea, the Alger project, and there will be a link in the show notes, is this very interesting project that they, which is a chair they released about a year ago in, in 2020. And it's just a chair that has four parts, one base, one back, and as you can see in the picture here, and just two clips, okay? The whole core concept was that they needed to build a chair that will work for a lot of people. That means a few things. That means the size, the weight capacity, and also the price, okay? And once you start doing that, you need to figure out a way that you are gonna, you, the chair is gonna be comfortable for different type of bodies, different sizes, different ratios, and also different, different pockets. Right now, this chair uh, is about $70. So the innovation comes from the assembly process and also the material that they managed to produce, which is 30% recycled plastic. There's a really interesting video that I added as well in the show notes, 
but the, the what is really interesting is that it's really easy to assemble and that's a, assembly is a really big part of ikea's process they basically you just have you put the, the top of the chair on top of the base and you just have two really big clips that you snap in and it just keeps everything in place there is no need for screws there is no need for screwdrivers or complex tools very easy and actually the inspiration of that chair was uh, in ski boots the using the clipping system that they use that needs to be easy to 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 remove in case you you fall off a cliff and very stable so that was really interesting so how that assembly process of the odka stuff uh compares to what ikea furniture used to be like or used to be like to assemble it i think we've all had those kind of like experiences of assembling a billy bookcase for example right back in the day and all that kind of stuff like you know i remember my in my house we redid the whole house and yeah. um we filled it with ikea stuff and i remember doing like maybe for like three months every weekend assembling ikea stuff yeah and you know it was very sometimes if you didn't do it the right way the actual furniture itself would be damaged if you know what i mean flimsy and only strong where it needed to be and so heavily optimized like that and I just remember just feeling like the pressure's on because if I don't do this right, you can't really do it again. Whereas this feels like a lot more removable. You can do it once and disassemble it, move to a new place, reassemble it, whereas you just can't really do that with, you know, the old style of flat pack furniture, if you know what I mean. Did you enjoy assembling IKEA furniture? A hundred percent. I found it super satisfying, even as an adult, I find it really, really satisfying. Hmm. It's like Lego for home. I it guess. is like Lego. Yeah. And, and the reason why I'm saying this is because, so one is a product that it starts with the user, but there are two other components about how they design their product. And the other one is shifting the assembly process to the end consumer, all right? Yeah. If you think about it, the manufacturing process is where you can save the most money. As I don't know if you have seen this Elon Musk talking about Tesla. Designing a Tesla is really easy compared to manufacturing a, an electric car at scale. Mm. That's actually really hard. And the hard part here as well is, is manufacturing these, all of these 9,500 product lines is many more assembly lines here. And if you manage to shift the assembly process to the end user, then that means you are saving a big part of that time, budget, um, and price, and you are able to cut price and then offer a, a cheaper product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fun part is that IKEA managed to advertise that as a fun part. They managed to do it as an attribute of the brand rather than, oh, it sucks. You need to build your own furniture, right? They, they make it, you need to do that. And I, and I believe we're going to talk about that in, in a bit, but the final bit as well is, and I think there is so much into play such a massive role into how you design a product that needs to be flat packed and optimized in order to maximize the transport and storage afterwards, because Remember when you have things in stock, the last thing you want is to have a product in stock for a very long time. You just, you just want a, a quick flow. So the more products that you can have in stock, the more money you spend, right? Mm -hmm. But what if you can minimize, let's say you have a, a volume of a product or a bookshelf mm -hmm. that is, let's say one meter tall, but what if you can minimize that to a couple of centimeters, 10, 20 centimeters tall, once it's, it's flat packed, if that makes yeah. sense. As you can see, most of Ikea's products, the, the big products, the big shelves and, and sofas, etc., come in very compact um, packages. I wonder if that's frustrating as a designer, right? Because 
you want to make XYZ shape or form, right? And you can't do it because, you know, even if it's flat packed and, you know, the, the user assembles it, etc. like for shipping, for a price point reason, for whatever reason, it, you can't do it. Again, forms that designers want to make, but they can't because it's too complex to assemble on the user side. And it gets, yeah. and it gets kicked, gets at that stage. I can imagine that being really annoying because as a designer at that point, you have to really, really involve the user instead of saying, Hey, I've made this thing. It's yours now. It's like, Hey, I've made this thing and we're going to make it together. And I'm a designer. I'm super smart. I understand how this whole thing works. And you know, I don't mind, I know the right way to assemble things, but you're a dumb, silly user, uh, you and my design. Which I guess is the point of design, but I can still see that being really annoying. Yeah, there is actually a Harvard business study that says, uh, they call it the IKEA effect. And that says basically people develop more attachment to the product they just bought if they build it themselves. Mm. So in this case, it actually works to their advantage that says, I love this chair even more because I built it. Mm. So adding that part of that contribution, that also helps the, the IKEA brand. The interesting is, uh, and this was, a, they just added this recently is what if you are a mom of three kids, you work and you can't, you don't really have the time to build um, your kid's bed. What happens then? That's when IKEA added the, you can hire some of our IKEA builders to make it for you. Mm. So that could be a part, uh, a solution, but what, what, what I want to discuss now, and I want you to help me answer this question is we already saw these three elements, which is flat pack design. How can we make, how can we make in a compact storage system? How IKEA shifted the assembly of the components to the user and it all starts with the user, right? Those were the three main categories that IKEA used to design their own products. And in the next episode, we're going to explore a really interesting thing that IKEA calls a circular product design principle, but we're going to leave that for the next product. But what I need you or want you to help me answer is how does IKEA manage the production of so many product lines? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, you asked that question. Uh, they've got stores all around the world, but they actually manufacture in over 50 countries around the world. And what's interesting yeah. about IKEA is that they had, they actually don't do any manufacturing themselves like Apple in that respect, um, in the sense that they pay other companies to build a Billy bookcase to their specifications. Factory in places like China, um, and like, I think a quarter of everything that they manufacture is made in China. And also what's interesting is that IKEA itself is also very popular in China. Um, and it's kind of like a, a status thing in a, in a country that is, you know, growing economically. They also manufacture in developing countries like Vietnam, Malaysia, Myanmar, mm. but also use these different areas around the world to manufacture different types of products. So in Eastern Europe, that's where they actually typically make uh, higher priced items because they're more suited for the markets that they're close to, such as uh, Europe. Um, and also the, the type of manufacturing capability that is typically, you know, a little bit, uh, allows more complex jobs to be done. So if typically, if you've got a more expensive IKEA product, it will be made in Eastern Europe. If you've got a more commodity IKEA product, it'll be made in somewhere in East Asia, perhaps. Mm. What's in packaging and shipping, like you've already covered, um, is considered at the design stage. So it's not like, oh, we made this beautiful chair. Now let's figure out how to, how to package it and ship it and how to disassemble it and stuff like that. That's all done at the design stage until then. When they're working with their suppliers, 
they actually a little bit like Apple as well. That the parallels here are quite a lot, actually, in my opinion. Um, they sign very long term contracts to help lower their prices, but also build a relationship with suppliers. We've talked about already how the environment is really big in terms of IKEA's brand, and because they sign these long term contracts, they can actually influence the way their suppliers work and how they do st- and how they do stuff, where they source their materials, how they treat their workers, that kind of stuff. I'm not here to say whether it's working or not, uh, but they have this thing called the IKEA way yourself the ikea way of purchasing home furnishing products which they call iway internally which is like theirs of course they're a profit making company and i don't want to say oh ikea is brilliant for the world and stuff like that i'm sure like many companies have done some shady stuff with regards to the environment but they've got this commitment with price but not at any price so we want to economically reduce the cost that we have to spend in order to to make this billy bookcase but we're not willing to compromise on some things like the environment like you said, um, but actually, Luigi, it's really interesting, right? Because they've got this very complex supply chain. They've got yeah. manufacturing bases all over the world. They've got markets all over the world. But right now, it's not quite working out because as we found out, you can't get some stuff uh, specifically in the UK as well. And that's because of uh, the driver shortage country, and they're not immune to that as well. So because of any suppliers uh, and so many manufacturing partners, they're liable to any kind of issues in the supply chain, just like any company is. Yeah, to external factors as well. Yeah. Interesting. And I so wish they'd sort it out because I really want that shoe rack. A hundred percent. But it's, it's just 10% of the products, right? Product lines I have here are not there. Trouble with, with fulfilling those demands. And it has happened many times that we just go there and they don't have X product. But if you think about it, 10% is quite actually a lot of products. It's 950 products. Absolutely. How you produce 9,500 products and how do you scale to that amount and fulfilling all the storage and warehouses that IKEA has is not an easy task. So I just can't think about how that supply chain manager is working out. It would be really interesting to have him in this show. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just, they're just like gray hair, you know, all super frazzled. They're like, I haven't seen the outside world for, <laughs> for one and a half years. You know, go, going back to this, actually, to the supply chain and, and the design process, just linking these two points. I, I read as well that IKEA actually works really closely with the, during the design cycle, during the design, the design process of their products. They not only work with manufacturers, but they also work with suppliers. And they basically try to figure out all this material innovation that came for the odd gear project. So it's, it's the point I'm trying to make here is that during the design process, it's not just IKEA's decision. It's also supply chain, it's also manufacturers, it's also the, the designers, ex, external designers they hire and, and, and external companies like IDEO. Do you know IDEO, the, the design agency? And they have collaborated mm-hmm. with IKEA. And now we will discuss this in the future episode, but IKEA is also partnering with Lego, uh, Sonos and other companies. So I, I, it would be really interesting to see how those design um, decision-making processes work. Well, maybe, maybe we'll cover some of that in part two. Yeah. Awesome then. Well, just to recap this episode, we discussed how design has enabled IKEA's business model during the pre-purchase experience. And in part two of this episode series, we will discuss how IKEA has designed the post-purchase experience through its manual design, the future of IKEA with AR, future of retail store, and how IKEA is using their own IKEA labs to innovate and create future products using partnerships with external companies. So 
Great chatting with you today, Ravi. So if people want to find out more about us and keep the conversation, what can they do? They can find us online. They can find us on Twitter at designbyus underscore FM. They can find you on Twitter at Luigi underscore D'Entrono. They can find me on Twitter at Ravi is occupied. And also, if you want to find the show notes from today's episode, if you want to support the show as well, you can find us on Patreon. Uh, and there'll be a link to that in this episode show notes. And go there, figure out all the different links that we've been talking about during this episode. And also feel free to support us as well. Cheers, Luigi. Yep. See you in part two, man. See you in part two.